servant leadership movement in Francis of Assisi through his life, through his teachings, and through what he shared um, are, are really one and the same. And, and really, when you talk about leadership, and, and when I look at the life of St. Francis, we're talking about engaging for impact. Welcome to the Breakthrough of Grace podcast, a place where we share the stories of ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. We invite you to join us as our speakers talk about their journey towards living lives of rich Christian authenticity to encourage and inspire each one of us. We are thankful you're here and taking this time to spend with us. Welcome, friends. Our episode today features a talk by Brett Schonsenbach on the topic of St. Francis and servant leadership. Brett is a dynamic speaker who presents a rich and active Catholic identity. He's been married for 29 years. He and his wife have six children, and throughout his life, he has been involved in youth and young adult ministry while growing his multi-decade business career. In this reflection, Brett unpacks how St. Francis of Assisi faithfully and strikingly lives out the teachings of Jesus Christ in loving service to the church and to one's neighbor. What I love about this talk is Brett's passion for the gospel and his infectious enthusiasm for encountering Christ in day-to-day life and how he sees St. Francis as a model for us all. Brett's talk was recorded during a monthly prayer meeting held at a parish in Southern California. We hope this blesses you as much as it did us. An introduction of myself just real briefly, and then we'll get into our topic. Um, I was, I'm a cradle Catholic, born and raised here in Southern California, and I was brought up in a fairly typical Catholic home, which to me means... Um, mom made sure we made it to CCD every week, and my father fell asleep during the homily every Sunday at Mass and had to be elbowed when it was time to stand up for our Catholic catholicsthetics. Um, and but for me, um, my mother was very involved in the pro-life movement, and I grew up in that kind of environment as a teenager. Um, she she actually was one of the co-founders of the birthright, now called Birth Choice, in San Marcos. And um, so we, but, but her journey was she got involved in like sidewalk counseling and hotline counseling and all these kinds of things. So we were just, our whole family was imbued with this pro-life mentality that was all around us. <clears throat> and, and when I got into my teen years, she made sure we went to like youth group, you know, at her parish. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't protest, but I, I just kind of went along. I was like, okay, this is what we do, okay, whatever. And I went to several retreats. The retreats were fine. They were great. I got involved in being involved in retreats. But my personal deeper level conversion happened um, between my junior year and my senior year of high school. And I was sitting in the parish there at St. Francis Church. And we had our replica of the San Damiano Cross up there behind the altar. And I was sitting there. And one of the days, um, I don't know, I can't for the life of me remember why I would have been by myself, um, not with my family or whatever, but I was sitting there and I was looking at the cross and the Holy Spirit hit me and said, <clears throat> here's my big conversion moment. 
You mean all these things that we talk about at youth group and about and at church are supposed to affect the way I live my life the rest of the week. <laughs> oh, I get it. And it wasn't that I was leading this hedonistic life, but still there was something, you know, that there was a shift in that moment that changed and changed my entire trajectory of the rest of my life. And, and I'm still on that path. And <clears throat> It changed where I went to college. I ended up switching. I was, you know, looking at, you know, major colleges in Southern California, but instead I ended up going to Franciscan University, which changed my life because I met my wife. And I was actually there at school with uh, Father Dave Pavanka before he was Father Dave um, and got to know him as a person and as a friend. Um, and, and so that moment, though, in front of the San Damiano Cross for me, our version of it at St. Francis in Vista um, was was uh, life altering, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background. After getting, first of all, I should sh share my wife and I've been married 29 years. We have six children. Um, <clears throat> still live here in North County. My children age from 28 years old down to 10. Um, uh, and you can pray for my oldest. He's in his second year of seminary here in the diocese. So, you know, if it's God's will and such that he become a priest here, that would be phenomenal. But um, pray for him as he continues to discern. His name is Kyle, and he would appreciate those prayers. But I want to just share my corporate background because that's going to get into the, the core of this talk. Um, after college, um, I got into Youth ministry, I was kind of, I kind of laughed about how God slam dunked me into youth ministry. You know, um, I always thought youth ministry was something that a single person did, because that was my role models when I was a teenager. We had all these awesome young adults who were filled with faith at St. Francis. And so I thought oh, that was something just a single person did. And when I got married, I thought, oh, that's over. And then uh, my wife and I moved here. And it was a deep recession of the early 90s here when General Dynamics had laid off like 10,000 people in San Diego and I couldn't find a real job. And so after months of trying to find a job, I found a part-time sales job and a part-time youth ministry job on the same day after six months of searching for jobs. And I'm like, okay, that's what I got to take. That's what I got to do. I had a baby by then and all this stuff. So I was in youth ministry for seven years and... <clears throat> And loved it, but as my family grew and my needs grew, the, the compensation for being a youth minister didn't keep up. Uh, I know that's a shock to many of you. So, um, you know, I had been in sales at the same time I started youth ministry in computer software, and so I ended up going back into um, full-time sales and marketing in a computer software company, which will come into play in my story today. Um, then after about eight years of that, I went into real estate. I did residential real estate for eight years. That's what connected me into the world of the Chamber of Commerce, where I am now. Um, and the, the next big recession of 2008, I was a realtor and it wasn't very much fun. You know, <coughs> housing prices were in the tank and, and short sales and everything. And, um, and the gentleman who was running the Vista Chamber of Commerce at the time, he and his wife decided to move back to Michigan where they were from. So I switched from being a board member of that chamber to being the, the executive of the chamber. And uh, I did that for 10 years. And now currently I just switched over to the Carlsbad Chamber of Commerce just this year uh, in January. So I've been in chamber, I've been running chambers for I'm now my 11th year. <laughs> and throughout that time, um, 
one of the things that I've witnessed and, and got to be a part of is this movement of a thing called the servant leadership movement. And a lot of you have heard of it, maybe you've participated in it, maybe you've studied it, read it, and whatnot. There's a couple of big leaders in the servant leadership um, movement here in North County. Ken Blanchard here in Escondido is a big mover and shaker in that world. Art Barter, who runs uh, Daytron World Communications and Vista and has spawned off the Servant Leadership Institute, which is in Carlsbad, is also a big mover and shaker in the servant leadership um, movement. And so I've been studying it, reading it, practicing it, going to conferences for all these years, and, um, and, and I love it. But what I want to talk about today is um, how, how the servant leadership, servant leadership movement and Francis of Assisi, through his life, through his teachings, and through what he shared, um, are, are really one and the same. And, and really, when you talk about leadership, and, and when I look at the life of St. Francis, we're talking about engaging for impact. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna correlate those two today and share my experience. So why why bring St. Francis into this? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, growing up in a parish called St. Francis and then going to a Franciscan university, it actually offends me that most people's experience of St. Francis is that he's great with animals. <laughs> it really bothers me that that's what we think of as St. Francis. Or we go into the environmental mode. There was an article in the Southern Cross recently about some environmental group that and they're tagging themselves onto St. Francis and they're having a meeting and it's like, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of frustrating, you know, and even like as a, as somebody who's very um, passionate about Francis, you know, I have a statue of St. Francis in my front yard and it's got the birds or whatever, because that's all you can get. Like, where's the statues of Francis with him getting the, you know, getting the stigmata? Where's that? I was looking into recently, who is the patron saint of business? Anybody know? Nope, not St. Paul. It's not a name that is common that you're going to know uh, off the top of your head. Only if you took the time to Google this would you know it. It's St. Homo Bonus. Oh, yeah. yeah, I know. It was on the tip of your tongue. I saw it. He was a 12th century merchant, you know, and um, I'm sure he was a great guy. But I was looking for somebody to... Um, to utilize in terms of naming something after, and I'm sorry, in today's culture, naming something after homo bonus is not gonna work. So I looked up, who's the patron saint of leaders? Well, there is none. There is a patron saint of political leaders, and that's St. Thomas More, and that fits, but there is no patron saint of leaders or leadership. And of course, there is no patron saint of servant leaders, because that's Jesus. I mean, you know, that's that's all there is to it. Now, and of course, as we all know, Jesus established a church, and you know, by living, teaching, experiencing, and, and implementing God's love and everything that he did, um, you know, he established a church and he, he established, he passed the church on. But I was looking for something a little bit different, and and so as I started to explore Francis more deeply, I love this, you gotta, you gotta hear this. So, you know, we really shouldn't, this was written by Pope Pius XI in 1926, and that was the 700th anniversary of Francis's passing. And um, I love what um, Pius wrote, he wrote this. While it is presumptuous to make comparisons between the heroes of sanctity, who have been called to their heavenly home, and 
whom the Holy Spirit has chosen, one for this task, another for that purpose, here below. Comparisons which, arising as they generally do from inordinate motives, they're altogether futile and even offensive to God, the author of sanctity. Nice setup, right? <laughs> but, but still, it would appear that in no one has the image of Christ our Lord and the ideal of gospel life been more faithfully and strikingly expressed than in Francis. For this reason, while he called himself the herald of the great king, he has been justly styled the second Christ. So as I'm looking for servant leadership, Jesus is the ultimate servant leader. And if you study uh, people who have been active in the servant leadership movement, they want to talk about how they modeled themselves after Christ. Who better to look to than somebody who is the second Christ? So I went after Francis and started digging into him and, and looking at him as a model for servant leadership. So and most people are fairly familiar with Francis's life. Quick rundown. Um, he was alive in the turn of the 13th century. He was the son of a wealthy merchant. Um, his father would import uh, textiles from France and sell them to the wealthy folks in Assisi. Francis himself was quite a town socialite. He wanted to be a knight. You know, he wanted to go off to war. He did twice. He went off to war. The first one failed miserably. He was a POW for over a year after the first war that he went to. Only with his father coming and paying to get him out did he get out of uh, being a prisoner of war. On his second expedition, though, he only made it one day, and that was when he got his first calling from God, and God said, you need to turn back. I have plans for you. And he didn't understand what was going on, but he got the message that he needed to turn back. So he was only one day into that adventure before he turned around. And um, in 1205, he got the message that uh, Simon referred to, you know, Francis, go and rebuild my church. And by 1206, he had completely separated himself from the world. He completely broke from the world. And his father, just, you know, fun side note, um, for those of us who uh, raised teenagers and, you know, even when your teenager's a saint, there's going to be friction, right? <laughs> um, his father was not happy um, with how Francis broke from the world. And so, you know, he calls upon the civil authority that you need to bring Francis in and have a reckoning. And so the civil authority does, and Francis says, yeah, I no longer recognize the authority of the civil authority. <laughs> no, I'm not coming. <laughs> but his father was not a dumb person, and he went to the bishop and said, you need to call Francis in, because we need to have a reckoning. And Francis did recognize the authority of the bishop, so he came, and in that moment, it's kind of the famous moment that you might have seen in films and other things where Francis says, you know what, he takes everything of ownership that could have been regarded as his, his earthly fathers and drops it and gives it back to him and says, I no longer will call you father, my only father will be our father who art in heaven, and moves on and uh, lives a life of radical poverty after that. And his, when he gets the message from, from Jesus to go and rebuild my church, he does not fully recognize the context of what that meant at first. And he literally thought his job was to rebuild the church at San Damiano that was crumbling. And so he goes and starts working on that. And then when he finishes that, he picks another church, San Pietro to fix, and then St. Mary of the Angels. And 
But while he's doing this and he's living out this radical poverty, he starts attracting followers. It never was his intention, never crossed his mind, but he starts attracting followers. And so by 1208, he gets his first followers. By 1209, he's got 11 of them. And he realizes he's got to write a way of life to help these brothers. And so that's what, um, in very short order, he's all, he gets... He goes from just living his own life of poverty, radical poverty, to he's got three orders. And now, I now I don't think anybody actually could, if you were to go, I tried, if you were to go and try to look up how many Franciscans there are today, I don't think anybody could answer it. There are so many splinters off of the various orders, and there's so many different people who have tagged themselves into the Franciscan way of life that um, I, I don't even think anybody knows how many people there are who would claim to be Franciscan. It's, it's uh, you know, if you were to look at, besides the movement of Christianity that Jesus started, I'm not sure there's another movement that's happened in our history that has gone as far and been as, if you can use the term successful, as Franciscanism, if that's a word. So he created, so he created this rule of life. So the rule of life, he started in 1209. The first version he created was almost completely just quotes from scripture. It was very short. There's actually no written copies of it left. We don't have it anymore. And, um, but it's referred to quite a bit um, in other writings. And he got a, a verbal approval of it, an oral approval of it from Pope Innocent III. And, and Pope Innocent had his doubts. He had his doubts about this beggar dude just, you know, nine with 11 companions at the time in this whole, he wants to live this radical life. He had a serious doubts. And then famously, he had a dream uh, within about a year of the Basilica of St. John Lateran, which was the, the cathedral in Rome that, the, that was the Pope's home at the time, crumbling all around. And here was Francis holding it up by himself holding this cathedral up, and so he realized, oh, this is for real. But it took God's inspiration to get the Pope to realize this was for real. So 1209, he writes the first version, it's mostly just quotes from Scripture, mostly just quotes from the Gospels, actually. 1221, he revises it, and, and that's the main one that I'm going to use in my talk today. 1223 is the final version, which I'll talk about. So I'm going to juxtapose Francis's rule of life and his example with this book. This is called The CEO Next Door. Um, I've read many servant leadership books and, and been to conferences, etc. Um, what I love about this book, and I highly recommend it if you're a student of this stuff, um, it was published in 2018, so it's very recent, current, but it talks about four behaviors that transform ordinary people into world-class leaders, and I'm going to talk about those today. But what the reason it struck me is um, it's based on extensive data from over 17,000 assessments that these guys did over the period of like 20 years of people in leadership. And over 2,000 of those people were CEOs. And so I'm gonna take their lessons here and juxtapose them with Francis's life and Francis's lessons that he passed on. So jumping in, number one. The number one um, characteristic of a successful leader is to be interdependent not independent. 
And there's a myth out there, right, that successful CEOs and corporations are these, you know, independent people and they make their decisions in silos and things like that. But actually, it's the reverse. Successful CEOs realize that they are dependent on the actions of others. Their data actually showed that um, CEOs who tested very highly for independence were twice as likely to underperform expectations, corporate expectations. So if, um, if you've ever um, attended a servant leadership conference or whatever, you'll, you'll see them talk about a typical org chart. A typical org chart is, if you look at like a triangle, right? Here's the CEO at the top, and then here's the executive leadership, and then middle management, and then here's the rank and file of the company. Servant leadership tries to flip the triangle upside down. And so this, no, the CEO is here at the bottom, and they need to be the servant of the executive team. He needs to serve the management team. He needs to serve the rank and file. And this was something that Francis um, got, obviously, from Jesus, you know, without a doubt, because that's what Jesus talked about with the apostles. But Francis had from a very, very early point. Um, it's, it, it's humorous when you read his rule that he wrote for 2021. And because when he talks about um, the ministers, by let me just get my dates correct, by 12... He visited, um, he visited the Pope in like 1209, and then by 1217, he had already created ministers within, he was growing so fast, I mean, the friend, people were just being flocking to him, so he created ministers within his order by 1217. So it was very clear <clears throat> that his ministers were meant to be servants of everyone else. It was not, he did not want them getting you know, egos, arrogance, anything like that. So every time in his writings that he mentions the word ministers, he puts in there the servants of the others, the servants of everyone, the servants of, the servants of. I mean, he wants to make sure you know as a minister, your job is to serve, to serve, to serve. So um, let me read this little one sentence here, chapter four. Chapter four, where he first talks about the ministers, it is the duty of the friars who are elected ministers and therefore the servants of the other friars to blah, 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 blah. Every other time he mentions the word ministers, he adds in there the servants, those who are to serve others, etc., etc., etc. So leadership for him at the very beginning meant to serve. And what's fascinating when you look at in the corporate world too, those who serve are the best leaders. They had an unexpected finding in their data set here um, when they were mining through these 17,000 things. And if you, uh, if you listen to leaders in the corporate world, you'll frequently hear people talk about who mentored them. That's a very common thing. If you wanna be a leader, find a good mentor. Find somebody who can help you and you can learn from. But what was fascinating, what they found was, is that those who focused the most on who mentored them were actually less effective than those who focused on mentoring others. This is what it says. The importance of finding powerful and supportive mentors is among the mainstays of your typical career management 101 path. However, when we crunched our assessment data, we found that the weaker CEO candidates talked about the importance 
of mentors in their career, the stronger candidates talked about offering mentorship to others and more about the mentorship, more than the mentorship they received. So um, leadership has to start with a servant attitude. It has to. Other things that CEOs have to do in the corporate world, <clears throat> they have to set the vision of their company. They have to set the intention. They have to put the, and they have to live it out and carry it out with every action, every decision, every interaction. That's their job. That's why they've been employed to, to, to be there. And they have to communicate that vision. They have to live it. And we talk about in the corporate world how messages, for them to actually sink in, they have to be communicated at least seven times and usually in like seven different ways. This is very common. You'll hear this in marketing, right? Um, you know, today, you know, we have, you could communicate in person with video, with uh, social media, with whatever, email, you know, having all these mediums. But, um, and it's a very important, it's a very important thing um, to, to bring messages, if you, especially if you're trying to change a culture, right? A corporate culture, you want to bring in a certain attitude. My wife is a nurse at um, Sharp Mary Birch uh, Hospital in San Diego. And um, you, know, you might be familiar with them. They, a lot of babies are born there. And my wife's a postpartum nurse. And, uh, and Sharp Mary Birch is part of Sharp Health Care System. There's multiple hospitals. I'm not exactly sure how many, but I think about six or seven in San Diego alone. So it's a big company. And um, her CEO, she's been there nine years. Her CEO for eight of the nine years was a gentleman named Mike Murphy, great Catholic businessman. And he really had set a very high bar of, of a servant leadership culture that he wanted to imbue throughout this company. Now, the bigger the company is, the harder it is to get your vision to filter all throughout the company. So one of the things he invested in, and when I say invested, he, he invested. One of the things they did was um, annually, they would rent out the convention center and uh, every employee of the entire system was expected to come to a session where they were setting the vision and they were communicating what they call their sharp experience. Now you might have seen commercials on TV um, because after they do this annually, they'll release some of the stories and, and they'll, they'll um, publish them and, and, and you'll see them on TV. And my wife went a couple of years and she'd get so inspired. I mean, she loved the culture, the attitude, the leadership. And she said, so she's like, you gotta come with me. You know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not an employee. How can I go? She's, They'll never know. Just come. You gotta say, you know, it's just, it's just, it's inspiring. It's exciting in their attitude. And, and um, you know, Mike Murphy's such a great leader. And then I'm like, okay. And she knew how much I was passionate about leadership and studying this stuff. I'm like, okay. So she kind of speaks me in one time, and um, and it was amazing. Um, you know, just being there and, and the stories that they had of, of their attitudes of care, care towards these patients, care to you know, that's at the bottom line. And a healthcare system right, is about care towards people. So, and my wife, you know, she's wired that way. She's a nurse, so she's a caregiver by, by you know, just by her DNA. But, and so she's bought into this hook, line, and sinker and loves it. But not everybody so. <clears throat> About a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, um, she's at work. And she is 
you know, these are 12 hour shifts, long days. She's walking down the hall at one point during the day and somebody's coming this way, uh, not a patient. He was like more of like a, probably a grandparent of somebody, you know, who, or a parent of somebody who just had a kiddo, a baby in there. And he's walking and she can kind of feel his eyes on her. And she's like, okay, not a patient of hers, but, but she makes eye contact and she does the polite thing and she kind of, you know, smiles and is cordial, but that smile was all it took. He stopped her. You seem like a nice person. Can I talk to you? Can you help me? She's like, uh, sure. What's going on? That nurse is not welcome back in our room anymore. Whoa. What happened? What, what can I do? What can I help? And let's just say not everybody at Sharp Mary Birch has bought into the Sharp experience. Okay. So, you know, this sense of um, communicating a vision that a leader has, it's very hard to get it all the way down. In this case, this nurse had completely offended this family, you know, entirely. My wife had to get her boss involved because she couldn't just step in. That wasn't her role. But, but even in a culture like hers, where they're trying so hard to create the attitude towards how to care, it doesn't trickle down all the way to, to everybody within the company. <clears throat> You know, Sam Walton, who um, was the, the founder, the leader of, of Walmart, his attitude as a leader was that he had to be ever persistent. He had to be out on the floor constantly. That was his attitude as the leader of this massive growing culture of Walmart. He had to be ever persistent in being out there and learning from his customers and his employees. He never was too big, you know, for being out there and interacting with people. I remember a story in a different book I read once where um, Sam Walton would actually go and uh, visit the competition. Now you can imagine Walmart was, was already becoming huge and they go to these little local, you know, uh, shops, stores, and he was taking a, he had like a kind of a junior executive with him and this junior executive, the one who is recounting the story, and they're walking through the store and the junior executive is like, oh my gosh, this place is nothing. You know, this is, this is a waste of our time and these guys got nothing on us, you know, because we're a mighty Walmart. And they're walking along and sure enough, Sam stops and was like, look at that. And he found this one little marketing thing that they were doing to promote some product. And he was like, that is brilliant. Was, we, we need to do that. That is a great idea. He could see he was humble enough to see other people had ideas that he could learn from, even though he was mighty Walmart. That is a great leader. Jim Donald, who was a former CEO of Extended Stay Hotels, and then he became CEO of Starbucks, and then another company I wasn't familiar with called Pathmarks, but his attitude was as leader that he had to spend at least half of his time out in the field. Otherwise, he's gonna lose touch, right? He's gonna lose complete touch with everything. Well, Francis of Assisi was way ahead of Sharp. He was way ahead of Walmart. He was way ahead of Starbucks. You know, even before when his order started growing, he realized to communicate his message, to communicate the vision, you know, he had to do a variety of things. So he started calling general assemblies by the year 1217, before the rule of 1221 was even written. He mandated every brother had to come annually to an assembly. It was required. 
And if the brother was international because of his missions he was doing, then he got a little latitude and he had to come every three years. But he needed them. He needed to create his sharp experience. Of course, we should say sharp was creating the Franciscan experience. But you know what I'm saying? He knew he had to lead and communicate and show everything. So, and he was so passionate at these um, these assemblies. Um, one of one of Francis's original biographer is uh, one of his companions, Saint Thomas of Chilano, and he wrote that at the first general assembly. Francis got so inspired and, you know, he's working with the brothers. And so he wrote this at the first general assembly. <clears throat> Let the brothers beware lest they show themselves outwardly gloomy and sad hypocrites. Now, this is easy to do when you, you're a beggar. As a son of a, of a merchant, of a wealthy merchant, he, de he detested money. In his rule, he talks about how money is the equivalent of dust. Money was to have no part in their, in their um, order at all. Now, I find that humorous as an alumni of Franciscan University, because all they do is call and ask for money, but I, <laughs> I digress. Um, let the brothers beware lest they show themselves outwardly gloomy and sad hypocrites, <clears throat> but let them show themselves joyful in the Lord, cheerful and suitably gracious. So he's constantly setting the vision of what his expectation is. We are living the gospel out we're living radical poverty. We're, we're begging, but we can't be like gloomy and sour. And, you know, no, we have to be filled with joy. They're fasting constantly. When you read through his order, talk and look at how much they fasted. It's amazing. But none of that, they had to be showing the joy of the Lord in all of that. And so he was constantly using uh, an assembly and using different means uh, to communicate this all the way to his death. On his deathbed, he wrote his they don't call it his last testament. They call it the testament of St. Francis. Even after he'd, he'd written these rules and all these different things, these ways of life, but he's on his deathbed and he writes his testament and it's his final appeal. This is in 1226, his final appeal for perfect observance of the Franciscan rule and way of life. Um, so he never, as a leader, he never, never, never stopped trying to communicate the vision. He never stopped trying, trying to communicate the direction that his group needed to go. Another good quality, though, of, of being this interdependence, we're still on interdependence here, is knowing when to let other people shine, right? So great leaders who understand their interdependence know when to let others lead and when to let others take, take the limelight. And it's critical for success in the different organizations. I don't know if any of you have had firsthand experience Maybe you've had secondhand experience. I've had both, first and secondhand experience with um, leaders who didn't know when to step aside because the, the organization they've created was outgrowing their skills and they weren't the right person to continue the mission of their organization. I've seen it in nonprofits where the original visionary had to get booted out by the board of directors and somebody else put in place. There's one that we're all very close to here locally that that happened to. Um, and then I've seen it in a company that I worked for, the software company that I originally worked for in um, the early 90s. The company was founded, I was one of the original founders, not, I wasn't an owner, I didn't have any financial skin in the game, but I was a founder, there's only two of us. 
and it was myself and this other gentleman, and um, great Catholic businessman. He had a passion for people. He wanted to have a great servant-led type culture where he really invested in the people. Um, and his main gift was he was a brilliant computer programmer. And I mean brilliant. He was so good at, at coding. But um, as the company grew, it was really apparent that he had gaps in his relational abilities. And instead of stepping aside and focusing on his talents, which would have helped the company continue to grow and letting somebody else kind of run the day-to-day -day operations, he tried to do both and the company imploded. You know, it, it, was, it was sad. It was, it was very sad to see um, how relationships were just burned, burned to the ground. Uh, it, was very, it was very sad and disheartening. Um, and, but Francis, Francis knew this, so he was the visionary. He's got the vision, he's got the, he's, he's um, got the message from Christ of what he's supposed to do. But he didn't need to lead the order. As the order grew, before the, the rule of 1221, which is the primary rule, um, he had already stepped aside. By 1220, he had turned the order over to Brother Peter Cant Cantani. Cantanini, I don't know, I can't pronounce the last name. Brother Peter, he turned it over to Brother Peter, who was one of the first uh, followers. You know, he stepped out of that role. And where was Francis? He was off evangelizing in the East. You know, he the very famous story of him. <clears throat> Francis figured out a solution to um, to get rid of the Crusades. There was no reason to go to war. How do you do that? He was going to go convert the Sultan. <laughs> And he literally did. He went, or he literally, literally tried. He went and walked right in, and the the, the Muslim soldiers, the, they're like, who are you? And he's like, I'm here to see the Sultan. <laughs> they're like, uh, did you make an appointment? Where's our, where's our Blackberry? You know, no, you know, and they were so, they didn't know what to do with them, and so they literally brought him to the Sultan, and the Sultan was so impressed with his passion, his sincerity, you know, and, and his presentation to the Sultan was, if you would create, if you would convert to Christianity, there'd be no need for this war. The holy places would then be back under Christian control, and, and the war, you know, wouldn't have to happen. And he meant every word of it. He said it with utter sincerity, and the Sultan was so taken by that that he didn't kill him. And uh, eventually, uh, he, he kept him around for a little while because he, he actually did listen to him. He listened to everything Francis shared in, in his pitch for conversion. Um, there's no record of him converting, but um, they did part in peace between the two of them. And, but Francis, that was his role. That was his job. Let somebody else run the order. He knew when to step aside. So the interdependence is key for being a successful leader. Number two um, in, in their study here is that leaders need to be decision makers and effective leaders need to be able to make decisions in a timely manner. 94% of the CEOs who tested poorly for decisiveness, they tested poorly because they made decisions too slow, overanalyzed. You can get paralyzed, paralysis of analysis, we call it, right? You can get paralyzed by 
doing analysis before you make decisions. But those who tested highly in decisiveness were extremely inclusive. They were inclusive in their decision making. Again, it's not this, the CEO is not the person who, the successful one's going off all by themselves and just figuring it all out and then coming out and telling everybody what's gonna happen next. He's inclusive. So again, I think Francis models this beautifully. He writes the first version of his rule, which as I said, was mostly just scripture around 1209, 1210. In 1221, he writes, he revises it. And the reason, <clears throat> What's fascinating to me is um, the rule of 1221 is um, about 25 pages long. That's all. 25 pages for his rule of life that ends up bringing thousands upon thousands upon thousands, untold thousands into the way of life of Franciscanism. But the rule of 2021, his brother said, was not precise enough. And it also lacked legal clarity for them. Francis wasn't a scholar. He wasn't dumb, but he wasn't a scholar. He was just passionate about Jesus. So his, his rule wasn't all that the brothers needed. And you can imagine these people are being attracted to him from all different walks of life. So they said, we got to update this rule. So he comes out with the rule of 2023. And it gets even briefer. Goes down to about 10 pages now. But in creating that next version, he listened to the brothers. This time he involved, he got more precise, he got more legal, he, um, he involved a canon lawyer, he involved Cardinal Ugolio, who he was close to. So he, he listened to their input to make it be what they needed to. to to help them in what they needed. In that version, the rule of 2023, he got approved by Pope Honorus III. The original one was approved by Innocent III, but that was an oral approval. He got official final approval of the rule of 2023. So that inclusivity. Point number three that they bring out here um, is that successful CEOs have to be highly reliable. You know, it sounds like, oh yeah, well duh, sure they do, but it's not as easy as it sounds. So CEOs who were known for being reliable in their assessments were 15 times more likely to be high-performing CEOs than those who tested weak or low on their reliability. So one of the, the phrases that's in this book that I absolutely love for leaders is CEOs who excel in reliability practice radical personal accountability. Radical personal accountability. I love that phrase. Um, <clears throat> they had to earn the right to hold others accountable by holding themselves accountable. And there's a sentiment out there that servant leadership in the corporate world is soft. People think, oh, servant leadership, that uh, we're all gonna like, you know, sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya. But that is actually not true. Servant-led organizations are gonna hold people accountable. There's gonna be an accountability piece and Francis was all about that. In, um, I love what he did in, because um, you can imagine, you know, he's setting this really high bar. Not everybody's going to live up to it. The Franciscan, the bar, I mean, Francis himself was so deep. Um, I don't know. I heard this story when I was a teen, and I, I haven't been able to 100% verify it. 
uh, if it's in here, I'll find it. But um, at one point in Francis's life, he um, he wanted to fast as Jesus did when he went out into the desert, but he didn't want to put himself on the same pedestal as Jesus. So Jesus fasted for 40 days without bread and water. So Francis fasted for 40 days and he ate like half a loaf of bread the entire time because he didn't want to put himself quite at that level, you know. But that, I mean, this guy was that far out there. So it's hard for the other brothers to all be at that same level, right? So there's going to be people who fall short. And just like in our companies, right? So he puts in here in chapter five of his rule, if a friar is clearly determined to live according to the flesh and not according to the spirit, no matter where he is, the others are bound to warn, instruct, and correct him with humble charity. So I love that though, humble charity. So the correction has to come with humble charity. It's not that we've got to slap him around, you know, it's got to come with humble charity. After he's been warned for a third time, if he still refuses to do anything about it, the friar's got to send him as quickly as possible to their minister and servant. Remember the word minister has got to serve. Minister and servant, or at least tell him about it, and then the minister can do what he thinks is right. So, um, there's got to be an accountability. There's got to be an accountability for living this way of life. We have to have accountability in our companies. We have to have accountability with what we do. Um, and part two of this, what I love about the accountability, though, for Francis, and it's true, we have to keep this in mind in our companies as well, is we always have to keep the bigger picture in mind when we're, when we're looking at this stuff. And so the, next, the very next sentence after this is that all the friars, both the ministers, who are the servants, and their subjects should be careful not to be upset or angry when anyone falls into sin or gives bad example. The devil would be only too glad to ensnare many others through one man's sin. They're bound, on the contrary, to give the sinner spiritual aid as best he can. We're not supposed to all jump on the bandwagon, you know, when, when somebody falls short, right? That's that would be that would be defeating the overall purpose. So he had this vision of <clears throat> he had this vision of keeping the big picture. The big picture is Christ, the big picture is living this way of life. It's not to pile on the sinner. So he sets the bar. Um, I know we're running short on time. I'm gonna share one more. Just quick story about um, about living this kind of stuff out that Francis inspires, but that is in a corporate world. And I was at a I was at a workshop about 11, 12 years ago, and they had brought in as a guest speaker a football coach. And this football coach his, was unique. His team had been um, undefeated. It was a high school football team, undefeated for like four years in a row, somewhere in Northern California. Might be the same team that was highlighted in the Jim Caviezel movie. They took some liberties in that movie, so it's hard for me to piece it together exactly with this, this coach. But when they questioned the coach, it's like, how do you get your team to perform at such a high level? He had a very interesting four-letter word that nobody really wants to talk about in the corporate world or in football, and that was love. And I'm like, oh, come again. <laughs> and, <it's, clears throat> and his premise for his team and the premise in a servant-led company is should be that you love your fellow teammates so much that you never want to be the weakest link 
you want to perform at such a high level, you never want to let down everybody else who's working there and, and who's part of your team, who's part of, you know, whatever's going on. And that's the way Francis led. You know, he wanted us to bring up the weakest link, but not to pile on. We have to do that in corporate America as well, including when we when we transition, quote unquote, somebody out of our team and gift them to the competition, you know, which has to happen in corporate America. We have to do it in a way that's charitable. And it's actually a pet peeve of mine how I believe that how we fire people is indicative of who we are at the core of our culture. Now, sometimes you have to fire somebody for, you know, something, you know, really bad. And that's that is what it is. But a lot of times when we transition somebody out, we go from one day, they're a trusted person who we, you know, they have access to everything in the company and, you know, they've been part of the team. And the next day we got a box and we're standing over their cubicle and we have to walk them to their car and, and grab their keys. And we act like all of a sudden they're public enemy number one just because sales are down or whatever the case might be. So the last point in the book in the book was adaptability we're out of time I love the CEO book talks about how we have to boldly adapt Francis boldly adapted I'm going to just run through how he adapted he was called to rebuild the church he goes into radical poverty he takes on followers he thought rebuilding the church was to you know physically rebuild the church but he realized it wasn't very quickly though he had something very unique happen and that was women wanted to join his order Simon mentioned Claire he wasn't prepared for that. So he had started women's order, right? And, and, and helped them. Soon secular people wanted to join. He wasn't prepared for that. Like people who believed in the way of life but couldn't leave and become, you know, friars and had to stay in their regular secular life. He had to adapt. He had to adapt. He had to adapt. He constantly had to adapt and keep seeking the Lord and how he was to adapt. So, um, and we have to do that in business as leaders. We have to adapt, adapt, adapt. My final story on that and, and then I'm wrapping up um, my youngest I mentioned is 10 years old we were watching Captain Marvel recently and there's a scene in Captain Marvel where um, she goes back into like the 1980s and she drops into a blockbuster and we had to literally explain to my daughter what the heck blockbuster was she had no context for blockbuster right if in corporate world we don't adapt we die we have to adapt we have to adapt we have to adapt and Francis did that so all that to be said I humbly submit to you that, in my opinion, the patron saint for servant leadership should be Francis of Assisi. Thank you for letting me share. Sorry if I went a couple minutes over. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. We're a small word of mouth movement. Can we ask you to share it with a friend? Please see our show notes and website for discussion questions and other resources. Until next time, may God bless you, keep you, and make his face shine upon you.